Section 19 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Maestrius Plutarchus, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Caesar. Chapters 43-57. to 57. Chapter 43. Caesar called his soldiers together and after telling them that corfinius was near with two legions for him and that fifteen cohorts besides under calenus were stationed at athens and megara asked them whether they wished to wait for these troops or to hazard the issue by themselves then the soldiers besought him with loud cries not to wait for the troops but rather to contrive and manoeuvre to come to close quarters with the enemy as soon as possible. As he was holding a lustration and review of his forces, and had sacrificed the first victim, the seer at once told him that within three days there would be a decisive battle with the enemy, and when Caesar asked him whether he also saw in the victims any favorable signs of the issue, "'Thou thyself,' said the seer, canst better answer this question for thyself for the gods indicate a great change and revolution of the present status to the opposite therefore if thou thinkest thyself well off as matters stand expect the worse fortune if badly off the better moreover on the night before the battle as caesar was making the round of his sentries about midnight a fiery torch was seen in the heavens which seemed to be carried over his camp blazing out brightly and then to fall into pompey's and during the morning watch it was noticed that there was actually a panic confusion among the enemy however caesar did not expect to fight on that day but began to break camp for a march to scotusa chapter forty four but just as the tents had been struck his scouts rode up to him with tidings that the enemy were coming down into the plain for battle at this he was overjoyed and after prayers and vows to the gods drew up his legionaries in three divisions over the centre he put domitius calvinus while of the wings antony had one and he himself the right where he intended to fight with the tenth legion but seeing that the enemy's cavalry were arraying themselves over against this point and fearing their brilliant appearance and their numbers he ordered six cohorts from the furthermost lines to come round to him unobserved and stationed them behind his right wing teaching them what they were to do when the enemy's horsemen attacked pompey had one of his wings himself and domitius the left while scipio pompey's father-in-law commanded the centre but his horsemen all crowded to the left wing intending to encircle the enemy's right and make a complete rout about the commander himself for they thought that no legionary army however deep could resist them but that when so many horsemen made an onset together the enemy would be utterly broken and crushed when both sides were about to sound the charge, Pompey ordered his legionaries to stand with arms at the ready and await in close array the onset of the enemy until they were within javelin cast. But Caesar says that here too Pompey made a mistake, not knowing that the initial clash, with all the impetus of running, 
adds force to the blows and fires the courage, which everything then conspires to fan. As Caesar himself was about to move his lines of legionaries and was already going forward into action, he saw first one of his centurions, a man experienced in war and faithful to him, encouraging his men and challenging them to vie with him in prowess. Him Caesar addressed by name and said, Caius Crescinius, what are our hopes, and how does our confidence stand? Then Crescinius, stretching forth his right hand, said with a loud voice, We shall win a glorious victory, O Caesar, and thou shalt praise me today, whether I am alive or dead. So saying, he plunged foremost into the enemy, at full speed, carrying along with him the one hundred and twenty soldiers under his command, but after cutting his way through the first rank, and while he was forging onwards with great slaughter, he was beaten back by the thrust of a sword through his mouth, and the point of the sword actually came out at the back of his neck. Chapter 45 When the infantry had thus clashed together in the center and were fighting, Pompey's cavalry rode proudly up from the wing, and deployed their squadrons to envelop the enemy's right, and before they could attack, the cohorts ran out from where Caesar was posted, not hurling their javelins as usual, nor yet stabbing the thighs and legs of their enemies with them, but aiming them at their eyes and wounding their faces. They had been instructed to do this by Caesar, who expected that men little conversant with war or wounds, but young and pluming themselves on their youthful beauty, would dread such wounds especially, and would not stand their ground, fearing not only their present danger but also their future disfigurement. And this was what actually came to pass, for they could not endure the upward thrust of the javelins, nor did they even venture to look the weapon in the face, but turned their heads away and covered them up to spare their faces. And finally, having thus thrown themselves into confusion, they turned and fled most shamefully, thereby ruining everything. For the conquerors of the horsemen at once encircled the infantry, fell upon their rear, and began to cut them to pieces. When Pompey on the other wing saw his horsemen scattered in flight, he was no longer the same man, nor remembered that he was Pompey the Great but more like one whom heaven has robbed of his wits than anything else. He went off without a word to his tent, sat down there, and awaited what was to come, until his forces were all routed, and the enemy were assailing his ramparts and fighting with their defenders. Then he came to his senses, as it were, and with this one ejaculation, as they say, "'What, even to my quarters?' took off his fighting and general's dress, put on one suitable for a fugitive, and stole away. What his subsequent fortunes were, and how he delivered himself into the hands of the Egyptians, and was murdered, I shall tell in his life. Chapter 46 But Caesar, when he reached Pompey's ramparts, and saw those of the enemy who were already lying dead there, and those who were still falling, said with a groan, they would have it so. They brought me to such a pass that if I, Caius Caesar, after waging successfully the greatest wars, had dismissed my forces, I should have been condemned in their courts. 
Asinius Polio says that these words, which Caesar afterwards wrote down in Greek, were uttered by him in Latin at the time. He also says that most of the slain were servants who were killed at the taking of the camp, and that not more than six thousand soldiers fell. Most of those who were taken alive Caesar incorporated in his legions, and to many men of prominence he granted immunity. One of these was Brutus, who afterwards slew him. Caesar was distressed, we are told, when Brutus was not to be found, but when he was brought into his presence safe and sound, was pleased beyond measure. Chapter 47 There were many portents of the victory, but the most remarkable one on record is that which was seen at Trales. In that city's temple of victory there stood a statue of Caesar, and the ground around it was itself naturally firm and was paved with hard stone. Yet from this it is said that a palm tree shot up at the base of the statue. Moreover, at Patavium, Caius Cornelius, a man in repute as a seer, a fellow citizen and acquaintance of Livy the historian, chanced that day to be sitting in the place of augury, and to begin with, according to Livy, he discerned the time of the battle, and said to those present that even then the event was in progress, and the men were going into action. And when he looked again and observed the signs, he sprang up in a rapture, crying, Thou art victorious, O Caesar! The bystanders, being amazed, he took the chaplet from his head and declared with an oath that he would not put it on again until the event had borne witness to his art. At any rate, Livy insists that this was so. Footnote. In Book 111, which is lost. End footnote. Chapter 48. Caesar gave the Thessalians their freedom to commemorate his victory, and then pursued Pompey. When he reached Asia, he made the Cnidians also free, to please Theopompus, the collector of fables, and for all the inhabitants of Asia remitted a third of their taxes. Arriving at Alexandria just after Pompey's death, he turned away in horror from Theodotus as he presented the head of Pompey, but he accepted Pompey's seal ring and shed tears over it. Moreover, all the companions and intimates of Pompey who had been captured by the king as they wandered over the country, he treated with kindness and attached them to himself. And to his friends in Rome he wrote that this was the greatest and sweetest pleasure that he derived from his victory, namely, from time to time to save the lives of fellow citizens who had fought against him. As for the war in Egypt, some say that it was not necessary, but due to Caesar's passion for Cleopatra, and that it was inglorious and full of peril for him. But others blame the king's party for it, and especially the eunuch Pothianus, who had most influence at court, and had recently killed Pompey. He had also driven Cleopatra from the country, and was now secretly plotting against Caesar. On this account they say that from this time on Caesar passed whole nights at drinking parties in order to protect himself. But in his open acts also Pothianus was unbearable, since he said and did many things that were invidious and insulting to Caesar. For instance, 
when the soldiers had the oldest and worst grain measured out to them he bade them put up with it and be content since they were eating what belonged to others and at the state suppers he used wooden and earthen dishes on the ground that caesar had taken all the gold and silverware in payment of a debt for the father of the present king owed caesar seventeen million five hundred thousand drachmas footnote during caesar's consulship fifty nine b c ptolemy alates was declared a friend and ally of the romans to secure this honour he both gave and promised money to the state and footnote of which caesar had formerly remitted a part to his children but now demanded payment of ten millions for the support of his army when however pothianus bade him go away now and attend to his great affairs assuring him that later he would get his money with thanks caesar replied that he had no need whatever of egyptians as advisers and secretly sent for cleopatra from the country chapter forty nine so cleopatra taking only apollodorus the sicilian from among her friends embarked in a little skiff and landed at the palace when it was already getting dark and as it was impossible to escape notice otherwise she stretched herself at full length inside a bed-sack while apollodorus tied the bed-sack up with a cord and carried it indoors to caesar it was by this device of cleopatra's it is said that caesar was first captivated for she showed herself to be a bold coquette and succumbing to the charm of further intercourse with her he reconciled her to her brother on the basis of a joint share with him in the royal power then as everybody was feasting to celebrate the reconciliation a slave of caesar's his barber who left nothing unscrutinized owing to a timidity in which he had no equal but kept his ears open and was here there and everywhere perceived that achillas the general and pothianus the eunuch were hatching a plot against caesar after caesar had found them out he set a guard about the banqueting hall and put pothianus to death achillas however escaped to his camp and raised about caesar a war grievous and difficult for one who was defending himself with so few followers against so large a city and army in this war to begin with caesar encountered the peril of being shut off from water since the canals were dammed up by the enemy in the second place when the enemy tried to cut off his fleet he was forced to repel the danger by using fire and this spread from the dockyards and destroyed the great library footnote in the museum founded by the first ptolemy two eighty three b c the destruction of the library can have been only partial End footnote. and thirdly when a battle arose at pharos footnote an island off alexandria connected with the mainland by a mole or causeway which divided the harbour into two parts End footnote. he sprang from the mole into a small boat and tried to go to the aid of his men in their struggle but the egyptians sailed up against him from every side so that he threw himself into the sea and with great difficulty escaped by swimming at this time too it is said that he was holding many papers in his hand and would not let them go though missiles were flying at him and he was immersed in the sea but held them above water with one hand and swam with the other his little boat had been sunk at the outset but finally after the king had gone away to the enemy 
He marched against him and conquered him in a battle where many fell, and the king himself disappeared. Then, leaving Cleopatra on the throne of Egypt, a little later she had a son by him, whom the Alexandrians called Caesarion. He set out for Syria. Chapter 50 on leaving that country and traversing Asia, he learned that Domitius had been defeated by Pharnaces, the son of Mithridates, and had fled from Pontus with a few followers. Also that Pharnaces, using his victory without stint, and occupying Bithynia and Cappadocia, was aiming to secure the country called Lesser Armenia, and was rousing to revolt all the princes and tetrarchs there. At once, therefore, Caesar marched against him with three legions, fought a great battle with him near the city of Zela, drove him in flight out of Pontus, and annihilated his army. In announcing the swiftness and fierceness of this battle to one of his friends at Rome, Amantius, Caesar wrote three words, Came, saw, conquered. Footnote. Veni, vidi, vici. According to Suetonius, the words were displayed in Caesar's Pontic triumph. End footnote. In Latin, however, the words have the same inflectional ending and so a brevity which is most impressive. Chapter 51 After this he crossed to Italy and went up to Rome at the close of the year for which he had a second time been chosen dictator. Footnote. The Senate named Caesar dictator for the year 47, immediately after the Battle of Pharsalus. End footnote. Though that office had never before been for a whole year, then for the following year he was proclaimed consul. Men spoke ill of him, because after his soldiers had mutinied and killed two men of praetorian rank, Galba and Cosconius, he censured them only so far as to call them citizens when he addressed them, instead of soldiers, and then gave each man a thousand drachmas and much allotted land in Italy. He was also calumniated for the madness of Dolabella, the greed of Amantius, the drunkenness of Antony, and for the fact that Corfinius built over and refurnished the house of Pompey on the ground that it was not good enough for him. But at all these things the Romans were displeased. But owing to the political situation, though Caesar was not ignorant of these things and did not like them, he was compelled to make use of such assistance. Chapter 42 After the battle at Pharsalus, Cato and Scipio made their escape to Africa, and there, with the aid of King Juba, collected considerable forces. Caesar therefore resolved to make an expedition against them. So, about the time of the winter solstice, he crossed into Sicily, and wishing to cut off at once in the minds of his officers all hope of delaying there and wasting time, he pitched his own tent on the sea-beach. When a favoring wind arose, he embarked and put to sea, with three thousand infantry and a few horsemen. Then, after landing these unobserved, he put to sea again, being full of fears for the larger part of his force, and meeting them after they were already at sea, he conducted all into camp. On learning that the enemy were emboldened by an ancient oracle, to the effect that it was always the prerogative of the family of the Scipios to conquer in Africa, he either flouted in pleasantry the Scipio who commanded the enemy, or else tried in good earnest to appropriate to himself the omen, it is hard to say which. He had under him, namely, a man who otherwise was a contemptible nobody, 
but belonged to the family of the africani and was called scipio celestio this man caesar put in the forefront of his battles as if commander of the army being compelled to attack the enemy frequently and to force the fighting for there was neither sufficient food for his men nor fodder for his beasts of burden nay they were forced to feed their horses on seaweed which they washed free of its salt and mixed with a little grass to sweeten it for the numidians showed themselves everywhere in great numbers and speedy and controlled the country indeed while caesar's horsemen were once off duty a libyan was showing them how he could dance and play the flute at the same time in an astonishing manner and they had committed their horses to the slaves and were sitting delighted on the ground the enemy suddenly surrounded and attacked them killed some of them and followed hard upon the heels of the rest as they were driven headlong into camp and if caesar himself and with him asinius pollio had not come from the ramparts to their aid and checked their flight the war would have been at an end on one occasion too in another battle the enemy got the advantage of the encounter and here it is said that caesar seized by the neck the fugitive standard-bearer faced him about and said yonder is the enemy chapter fifty three however scipio was encouraged by these advantages to hazard a decisive battle so leaving Afranius and juba encamped separately at a short distance apart he himself began fortifying a camp beyond a lake near the city of thapsus that it might serve the whole army as a place from which to sally out to the battle and as a place of refuge but while he was busy with this project caesar made his way with inconceivable speed through woody regions which afforded unknown access to the spot outflanked some of the enemy and attacked others in front then after routing these he took advantage of the favorable instant and of the impetus of fortune and thereby captured the camp of afranius and at the first onset sacked the camp of the numidians from which juba fled thus in a brief portion of one day he made himself master of three camps and slew fifty thousand of the enemy without losing as many as fifty of his own men footnote in april of forty six b c and footnote this is the account which some give of the battle others however say that caesar himself was not in the action but that as he was marshalling and arraying his army his usual sickness laid hold of him and he at once aware that it was beginning before his already wavering senses were altogether confounded and overpowered by the malady was carried to a neighboring tower where he stayed quietly during the battle of the men of consular and praetorial rank who escaped from the battle some slew themselves at the moment of their capture and others were put to death by caesar after capture chapter fifty four being eager to take cato alive caesar hastened towards utica for cato was guarding that city and took no part in the battle but he learned that cato had made away with himself and he was clearly annoyed though for what reason is uncertain at any rate he said cato i begrudge thee thy death for thou didst begrudge me the preservation of thy life now the treatise which caesar afterwards wrote against cato when he was dead does not seem to prove that he was in a gentle or reconciliable mood for how could he have spared cato alive when he poured out against him after death so great a cup of wrath 
and yet from his considerate treatment of cicero and brutus and thousands more who had fought against him it is inferred that even this treatise was not composed out of hatred but from political ambition for reasons which follow cicero had written an encomium on cato which he entitled cato and the discourse was eagerly read by many as was natural since it was composed by the ablest of orators on the noblest of themes this annoyed caesar who thought that cicero's praise of the dead cato was a denunciation of caesar himself accordingly he wrote a treatise in which he got together countless charges against cato and the work is entitled anti-cato both treatises have many eager readers as well on account of caesar as of cato chapter fifty five but to resume when caesar came back to rome from africa to begin with he made a boastful speech to the people concerning his victory asserting that he had subdued a country large enough to furnish annually for the public treasury two hundred thousand attic bushels of grain and three million pounds of olive oil next he celebrated triumphs an egyptian a pontic and an african the last not for his victory over scipio but ostensibly over juba the king on this occasion too juba a son of the king a mere infant was carried along in the triumphal procession the most fortunate captive ever taken since from being a barbarian and a numidian he came to be enrolled among the most learned historians of hellas after the triumphs caesar gave his soldiers large gifts and entertained the people with banquets and spectacles feasting them all at one time on twenty thousand dining couches and furnishing spectacles of gladiatorial and naval combats in honor of his daughter julia long since dead after the spectacles a census of the people was taken footnote according to suetonius this was not a census of all the people but a revision of the number of poorer citizens entitled to receive allowances of grain from the state and footnote and instead of three hundred and twenty thousand of the preceding lists there were enrolled only one hundred and fifty thousand so great was the calamity which the civil wars had wrought and so large a portion of the people of rome had they consumed away to say nothing of the misfortunes that possessed the rest of italy and the provinces chapter fifty six after these matters had been finished and he had been declared consul for the fourth time caesar made an expedition into spain against the sons of pompey these were still young but had collected an army of amazing numbers and displayed a boldness which justified their claims to leadership so that they beset caesar with the greatest peril the great battle was joined near the city of munda and here caesar seeing his own men hard pressed and making a feeble resistance asked in a loud voice as he ran through the armed ranks whether they felt no shame to take him and put him in the hands of those boys with difficulty and after much strenuous effort he repulsed the enemy and slew over thirty thousand of them but he lost one thousand of his own men and those the very best as he was going away after the battle he said to his friends that he had often striven for victory but now first for his life he fought this victorious battle on the day of the festival of bacchus footnote march seventeenth forty five b c and footnote 
on which day also it is said that pompey the great had gone forth to the war a period of four years intervened as for pompey's sons the younger made his escape but after a few days the head of the elder was brought in by deidius this was the last war that caesar waged and the triumph that was celebrated for it vexed the romans as nothing else had done for it commemorated no victory over foreign commanders or barbarian kings but the utter annihilation of the sons and the family of the mightiest of the romans who had fallen upon misfortune and it was not meet for caesar to celebrate a triumph for the calamities of his country priding himself upon actions which had no defence before gods or men except that they had been done under necessity and that too although previously he had sent neither messenger nor letters to announce to the people a victory in the civil wars but had scrupulously put from him the fame arising therefrom chapter fifty seven however the romans gave way before the good fortune of the man and accepted the bit and regarding the monarchy as a respite from the evils of the civil wars they appointed him dictator for life this was confessedly a tyranny since the monarchy besides the element of irresponsibility now took on that of permanence it was cicero who proposed the first honors for him in the senate and their magnitude was after all not too great for a man but others added excessive honors and vied with one another in proposing them thus rendering caesar odious and obnoxious even to the mildest citizens because of the pretension and extravagance of what was decreed for him it is thought too that the enemies of caesar no less than his flatterers helped to force these measures through in order that they might have as many pretexts as possible against him and might be thought to have the best reasons for attempting his life for in all other ways at least after the civil wars were over he showed himself blameless and certainly it is thought not inappropriate that the temple of clemency was decreed as a thank-offering in view of his mildness for he pardoned many of those who had fought against him and to some he even gave honours and offices besides as to brutus and cassius both of whom were now praetors praetors the statues of pompey too which had been thrown down he would not suffer to remain so but set them up again at which cicero said that in setting up pompey's statues caesar firmly fixed his own when his friends thought it best that he should have a bodyguard and many of them volunteered for this service he would not consent saying that it was better to die once for all than to be always expecting death and in the effort to surround himself with men's good will as the fairest and at the same time the securest protection he again courted the people with banquets and distributions of grain and his soldiers with newly planted colonies the most conspicuous of which were Carthage and Corinth. The earlier capture of both these cities, as well as their present restoration, chanced to fall at one and the same time. Footnote. Both cities were captured in 146 B.C., and both were restored in 44 B.C. End footnote. End of section 19.